Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 339. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 339 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer, and assistant professor at Berkeley School of Music, Sean McLaughlin. This is Sean's second official appearance on the show. His first was episode 37, many, many years ago. And basically, Sean is another one of my favorite people to talk to. We always have a, a good chat, whether it's in an official interview or whether it's bumping into each other at a trade show. I love talking with Sean. Sean's got a pretty jam-packed background, including working with various artists and producers. Uh, some of those producers include Andy Johns and Carmen Rizzo, and some of those artists include Matchbox 20, uh, Queensryche, Rush, Elliott Smith. He's also worked with some pretty big companies too, including MTV, ABC, NBC, CBS, and ESPN. This is not Sean's first time around the block. He has definitely worked with a lot of different people. And he runs a studio called 37 Foot Productions, which is located outside of Boston. And that's where we catch up with him today. So I'm very much looking forward to you hearing that. Sean McLaughlin coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about Dolby Atmos. Well, if you've been paying attention at all to uh, goings on in our world of music and sound, etc., long story short, Apple is getting behind the whole push for Dolby Atmos. The efforts to take old, old material, old catalog, you know, previous records, previous hit records, and turn those into Dolby Atmos mixes has been underway for quite some time. One of the authority figures on that that I turn to, of course, would be our good friend Steve Genowick. Steve has kind of uh, educated me and kept me up to date on you know how that all works and what's going on. So I've been following it pretty closely. Now, with this new announcement, I pretty much realized for myself what I feel is important is to get involved and to, at the end of the day, turn my stereo mix mastering room into a Dolby Atmos mix room. And a couple things contributed to that. Now, I'm fortunate that I have access, access to some pretty uh, talented people, uh, including Andrew Sheps, Brad Wood, of course, Steve, who I mentioned, and uh, Dave Way, all former guests of the show. So in reaching out to those guys and talking with them about the whole thing, and then that coupled with Apple's announcement, that convinced me that I am going to go in and I'm going to do it uh, one way or the other. So, of course, this is all brand new territory. And one thing that I've made a decision up front is, is I'm not going to go into debt over it. Obviously, this is working class audio. And if I haven't learned my lesson at this point after this many shows and telling my story over the years and spreading these ideas, then, you know, you'd think I'm a fool. So definitely not going to go into debt. For better or for worse, I think I'm going to sell off some gear that uh, I really like, but I don't want to hold on to stuff that I'm not using, certain microphones that I treasure, but I really want to get into this and I don't want to, as I said, go into debt over it. I'll tell you a little bit about it, I'll share that with you, I'll talk about it as shows go on and we'll see if in five years, if these episodes age, age well, right? If uh, I've made a big mistake or not, well, we'll find out. So what I've made the decision of, and there's there's many ways you can go with this, but based on the size of my room, I'm going to build out a 714 setup. That means seven speakers, uh, left, center, right, uh, side left, side right, back left, back right. That's the seven. The one is the low frequency extension, so a sub. And then the four are on the ceiling. So left and right in the front, left and right in the back, and there's your 714. Now you can go, you know, 724, 914, 924. I think you can go pretty crazy with it, but I have a fairly small room and this is uh, probably the best solution for this room. 
and I'm talking with some people that I've known for a little while and getting some uh, advice. Uh, some of whom I've already mentioned, including you know Steve and Dave and Brad and Andrew, and just trying to dive in and learn. Now, what about for you, my friends out there listening? How can you check this out? Well, number one, I'm going to include a link in the show notes to a, a link to the Dolby website that you can download the Dolby Atmos Production Suite. I think that's what I'm saying it correctly. And that will give you a 90-day trial of this renderer software that connects to your DAW. And for those that are wondering, I'm to the best of my knowledge, it works with, I know it works with Pro Tools because I've got it to work already, but it works with Logic, Ableton, I think Cubase, Nuendo, and the particulars of those other softwares, I'm not really sure because I'm just diving in on the Pro Tools front. So I'm going to uh, put that link in there. You can download this renderer you can also download the Dolby Atmos Panner, although there is a Panner in Pro Tools that will address this. And if I come up with any other resources for you to check out, I will certainly uh, link to those. And so you might say, well, hey, Matt, I don't have all the speakers, so how can I check this out? I don't have all the speakers either at this point. So how I'm checking it out is with headphones because you can download the renderer, you can connect it to your DAW, and then you could start mixing, uh, once you set everything up properly, of course, you could start mixing in headphones and panning stuff around. And then you might ask, well, can I just not buy the speakers and do the headphone thing? Yeah, you could, you could, but it, from what I've come to learn, it really is beneficial to have a speaker system to, you know, finalize your mix on. I'm just gonna try it out here on headphones while I get my knowledge together and then you know, get the get the equipment together as well. It's pretty exciting times, pretty interesting. Now, you can go to Apple Music now and start listening to some of this stuff on headphones. And I'm going to be truthful with you. I've heard some pretty amazing mixes, and I've also heard some downright crappy mixes. I'm not going to name any songs or artists because, you know, I don't want to throw any fellow engineers under the bus here. I don't know who mixed some of the stuff that I've heard, but some of it is outstanding and it's really exciting. And some of it is super disappointing, really. So yeah, I'm already started, starting to formulate an opinion on what makes a good Atmos mix, what makes a bad Atmos mix. And as I get my act together here, I'll, I'll share the knowledge that I have with you because I, uh, I would encourage you all to check it out. I know that there are some of my guests who have been on the show who've expressed on social media their skepticism and I get that, you know, we've been down this surround thing in a, in a million different ways before, but this seems to be the one that might just stick. And it seems there's a lot of forces behind it. And what I mean by that, of course, is, you know, Dolby and Apple, and of course, all the record labels seem to be behind it. So let's see what happens. And I'll, uh, I'll keep you abreast of what, I, what I'm doing and how it's working out. And hey, you know what? Worst case, I dive in, I do it. And it, maybe if it turns into a fad, well, I'll have some speakers to sell and that's it. So yeah, much, much more uh, information to come as it comes in. So that's it. But do check out the the link in the show notes to the renderer and uh, hook it up, you know, do some, do some searches on Google to find out what uh, some resources if, uh, you know, if the things that I list do not give you the complete information, but I'll do the best I can. So that's it. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. 
They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Sean McLaughlin, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Sean, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's been a while. You know, it's been about 300 episodes. <laughs> As of this recording, the 337th episode is out. You were episode number 37. <laughs> and you will be episode number 339 because Jessica Thompson preceded you. I love Jessica. As 338. She said the same thing about you. She said, oh, Sean's awesome. Well, anyways, welcome back. It's It's been a long time since you've been on here. Yeah. I think the last time I was here was right before my first time teaching at Berkeley. And for the audience, Sean is in the Boston area. So we are talking about the Berkeley School of Music. Yeah. Not, not Cal Berkeley. Not Cal Berkeley. That's also a great school. The other, the East Coast Berkeley. So are you still there? I'm still there. Yeah. It's been a year plus of Zoom teaching. So this is a very familiar site for me. Okay. Zoom teaching is not ideal for, I don't think too many people. It's the amount of energy I think you expend trying to keep eight to 15 students engaged through a Zoom call is so much more than it is in person because you get that back and forth in the room. Mm -hmm. And I- I just can't seem to vibe with that when I'm on Zoom. I feel like I'm putting out so much more energy just to get these kids to react in some way, because usually it's either a blank screen mm -hmm. or a muted screen. And I get the sense that they're listening and I can't totally tell that they're listening. Right. You know, especially when I can't see any faces. You know, it's interesting. I, I find the the pros of doing Zoom teaching, because I've done some uh, guest appearances at some colleges here in California where I've taught some um, podcasting audio classes as a guest lecturer. And one of the things I think that is beneficial to the student is the screen sharing ability to have the Pro Tools screen right there in front of you. Yeah. As opposed to sitting in a in a chair at a distance from a screen. That's great. The other thing that's great too is, and I've found this with some of my work actually with uh, Universal Audio as a contractor, is when mm -hmm. I do meetings there, in the past, I've been the only one outside of the building. And it's sometimes it's hard to hear acoustically because of the reflections in a meeting room. It's sometimes it's hard to hear certain people at the other end of a table. Sure. So when everybody's on Zoom calls, I can hear everybody perfectly. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I've found the the silver lining in it for me are those items. Well, the silver lining for me is I can cook lunch at home. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is And I true. don't have to pay for parking. Oh, you don't have to drive in. 
that's that's kind of a big thing for a 9 a.m. class. Right. Oh, that's, yeah. You can roll out of bed in your PJs. Well, you got to go to your studio because your studio is not at your house. No, my studio is about 20 to 25 minutes south and traffic has been a breeze. Of course. Throughout the pandemic. Yeah. And my building has been deemed an essential building to stay open because there's a plumbing supply shop in the building. So they've had to keep the whole building open. And for a majority of the pandemic, it was mostly me and Zach Bloomstein coming up here by ourselves. And there's a separate entrance to each of the control rooms. So it was easy for us to come in and communicate through a window Mm -hmm. or to sit 20 feet apart in the lounge. The studio, 37 foot productions. Yes. And see audience, the funny thing is, is that when Sean was originally on, he was on episode 37 and he's had 37 foot productions for quite some time. So it was 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I was wishing that I had thought it through and got you on 337. (laughs) Vance Powell, of course, loves the fact that he was 007 in the beginning. Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, moving on your studio, you've made some huge changes since you were on. Yeah. Yeah, I think, was it 2014 or 2015 that I was, I think it was 2015. Yeah, it must've been 2015. I'll go with that. So I had some people subletting from me for a bit, a percussionist who was one of the founding members of Dirty Vegas, which was like a dance band from England. He was living like 15 minutes from here. And Anthony Safari, who's worked with like Portugal, the man and, and all these other bands. And, and those two were mates from back there. And there came a point in 2016 where Steven got the percussionist gig for squeeze. So he said, I'm going to be gone for like nine to 18 months. So I can't keep renting this from you. And he gave me a good three months notice. So it's not like he hung me out to dry, but even if he did, what am I going to do? It's squeeze. It's one of my favorite bands ever. (laughs) I said, just make sure I get tickets when you come back to town. So I wanted to figure out what to do with this space that I'm currently sitting in. And I contacted Lou Clark, who is the owner of Sonic Space. They've designed a bunch of studios, including one that Jeske used to work at, Peerless Mastering. Mm -hmm. They designed the B Room at Q Division, which is also in Boston. He also was one of the designers of, I think, some of the rooms down at the University of Miami. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's done a few things. And I've known Lou forever, and I just like his aesthetic and the fact that he kind of shapes rooms based around who the engineer is and what their tastes and sensibilities are, and also can work within just about any space. And this is an old mill building. This building's been around for over a hundred years. So Lou Clark had said, you should turn this space into your control room. And once I saw his, his kind of vision for it, I looked at it and I was really keen on the idea. So it's kind of L-shaped because there are support beams about 12 to 13 feet from the wall. Mm -hmm. So the room's about 13 feet wide. It's not super wide, but I was able to mount gear in the wall because of that, which is something that I stole from like both power station and studio G they have gear mounted in the wall. And he actually measured the wall so that I stood up and he said, hold your arm up where it's comfortable, bring it down where it's comfortable. That's about how tall your racks are going to be. So I've got 27 space racks in the wall. That's great. Yeah, it's and it's just kind of modeled around me. So now I don't have to crawl on the ground to like make adjustments on compressors or anything. Everything is mounted. Let me ask you a totally typical working class audio question. You're renting that space, right? I am. Okay. So this always brings up the the usual array of questions. How long is the lease? Do you feel like the investment that you made is going to be able to that you'll see that investment back over time in a rented space? I've seen the investment back already. Okay, great. I've paid off everything so far. Oh, I love hearing yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, my rent is ridiculously cheap here. I hope my landlord doesn't hear that, <laughs> but my rent is really cheap in this space because it's an old mill that, you know, they only charge like so much per square foot and the utilities are factored in for the building. So it basically gets divided by everybody, even though I'm probably taking half the power in the whole building. So for me, it was, it was kind of a no brainer because I was operating when I had one control room and one live space. If I had five days booked, I covered my nut with, with five days. What town is it in? It's in a town called Rockland, the land of rock. Right. So it's, it's, it's not exactly 
It's not Boston. It's not even Boston proper. It's it's a suburb. I live in Boston. I live in Dorchester, which is kind of a little enclave that's right next to Boston proper itself. And it takes me 25 minutes to get here. And pre-COVID, you have a reverse commute, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. So most sessions for me start at 11 o'clock because I tend to work with working musicians and they need to be wrapped up about 6.30 or 7. So I'll start between 10 and 11. I'll have musicians get here at 11. I'll get here at whatever, 9.30, 10, whatever it might be to, to set up. Or I'll set up the night before because it's my space. I can do that. Because all the people from the suburbs are coming into the city to work and then they're going to be going the opposite direction coming home. Whereas you're- Exactly. That's why I say reverse commute. Yeah. And, and I'm also, mo- musicians don't get up early anyway. So, and if they do, they're, they're doing things other than heading to a studio. So usually musicians are heading my way around 10 o'clock or so. They get here at 11. We wrap up at seven. So even if there is a rush hour, they're kind of avoiding most of it. So you're running the studio, you and Zach Bloomstein, and you're teaching at Berkeley. Yes. What's the schedule like at Berkeley? Well, Berkeley for me is either a one or a two day thing a week. Mm. And if it's a one day thing, I jam a bunch of classes in one day and I'm completely spent by the end of the day. If it's a two day thing, like this summer, I'm doing four classes. It's, it's nine to seven on Tuesdays. So I'm not in the studio on Tuesdays. Mm. Yeah. It's a long day. Teaching is exhausting. Yeah, it is. It's more exhausting than here. I think being in the studio is, it's a different kind of exhausting. I don't feel like I have to constantly talk because we're listening to music most of the time. But when I'm teaching, I'm talking a lot and I'm explaining things and I'm showing principles of things. I'm, so there's a lot of energy. And especially like we were saying through Zoom, that energy gets compounded because mm-hmm. you're putting out more of it, talking to a bunch of screens. So I get a little more brain buzzy at the end of the day of a, of a teaching day. Let me get into a super geeky question. And I'm sure this is going to come out of left field, what I'm about to ask. Okay, so behind Sean audience, on his left, his back left, there's a mini split. And for those that don't know what a mini split is, it's an air conditioning heating unit. They could be combo units. And they require Mm -hmm. a very small penetration of the walls to get the the tubing out to the condenser unit, typically. Mm -hmm. At least most modern ones do. Yeah. And the condenser unit itself is actually kind of small. So you're in a rented building. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you get the, the condenser unit installed and approved by the landlord? The landlord, there are a couple actually, and they're just wonderful people that have let me do whatever I want. <laughs> I've been here for 15 years. I've never been late on a rent payment. So they're like, we want you to stay for 20 years. We don't even care. How long do you want the lease to be? So they actually contacted me in 2018. My, my rent's supposed to go up like 2% every year. And they contacted me in 2018 and they said, we're not going to raise your rent this year. We're just going to hold off. So they kept it at the same rate for two extra years. Huh. They're like, we just want to keep you around. Where did you find these people? Well, this building was the home of Pro Audio Design. I don't know if you remember Pro Audio Design, but they were the only official reseller of SSL consoles in North America. Okay. So all SSLs would come through here to get refurbed. So like Stevie Wonder bought an SSL from them. Wu-Tang bought an SSL from them. Got it. And had the, had the W embossed on the center section of the SSL. Uh-huh. So a bunch of people that I knew, obviously, were gear pimps for Pro Audio. And one of them started building a studio up here. And he had a kid. And when he had a kid, his wife said, you have a kid now. You can't be a kid. You can't have the studio anymore. Basically, he had a he had to make a decision because he was working a regular nine to five gig and sometimes traveling for them and then not leaving his wife at home with a child who was probably a safe bet for their marriage. Yeah. So he asked if I would take over. And I said, hell no, I don't want to own a studio. That sounds like the worst idea ever. But after time and after meeting with a couple of people that wanted to partner up, it seemed like a good idea. So the three of us took it over. There was one of the techs for Pro Audio and my friend, Mike Harnois, who now works for Apple. Both of them left within a year. So I was here by myself and okay. had to figure it out. All right. All right. Sometimes you just got to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you just get thrown in and have to figure it out. 
All right. So back to the mini split question. They just said, you know, whatever you got to do. Well, I asked about it and the super here had said, yeah, I'll, I'll meet the guy on a Saturday morning. We can do an install. Got an install in three, three rooms, the two control rooms in the live room. And we've got the condenser right outside the window of the lounge. So you got one condenser for how many mini split units? For three. And I could add a fourth for the lounge if I wanted to. You can get four units off of one condenser. I think you can even get more. They make condensers that I think do five. Huh. But the one that I have can do four. The audience right now is just like, what the hell? Am nobody, I yeah, nobody to? cares. <laughs> All they should know is I could wear a hoodie right now and still be really comfortable despite the fact that it's almost 80 degrees out. Who makes the mini split? Who's the manufacturer? This is a uh, Mitsubishi. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember being at a tape op in New Orleans years ago and seeing an ad in my hotel room for the Mitsubishi Mr. Slim. Yep, this is this is it. Oh, there you go. This is it. And I can't hear it. It's got a silent mode. It's so quiet. Okay, but this, you know, and I know I'm like dwelling on something that the audience is completely baffled by right now, I'm sure. <laughs> but listen, hear me out, audience. These mini splits, this is an economical and a logistical way to get AC or heating or both into your studio space, whether you're at home or whether you're at a rented space and you have a good relationship like Sean does with the landlord. These are great ideas because it only cools and heats the room that it's in rather than a whole forced air mm -hmm. situation. So, And it has a silent mode, so you can actually work. Like I can record anything but the quietest. I can even record quiet instruments in the other room. Like I've recorded finger style guitar in the same room as a mini split and it, yeah. you don't hear it. Welcome to this old house uh, or welcome <laughs> to working class audio, this old house edition. <laughs> You're in Boston. Most of those guys on that show are yeah. in Boston. Do we want to discuss click and lock flooring next? Oh, let's, like, should we, let's, should we really get into it? Yeah. <laughs> That'll be our YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The studio looks great. I've, I obviously you posted a, a bunch of stuff as, as it happened. And this is, this is going back a ways. I mean, you've had this in place now for a while. Yeah. So this space, this room got finished June 30th, 2017 at 6 30 PM. And my vocal session started at 7 p.m. So we finished like troubleshooting and line checking everything at 6.30. And then half hour later, my singer came in. Okay. So when you make a huge acoustic and aesthetic change to a studio like that, it kind of psychologically, I think, has an impact not only on your clients, but of course it has an impact on you. Did mm -hmm. it cause you to change workflows, business practices, or anything like that? Because you kind of felt like, hey, I'm more pro now. I didn't necessarily feel more or less pro, but while they were working on it, Zach and my former assistant, Steph Derwin, they were basically running the wiring. They were basically running cable and soldering connections and doing everything. And I was paying them like a decent hourly wage for it. But Zach asked me to hold off on paying him the hourly wage because he had said, I want to take over your old control room. I want to figure out a monthly rate. And I want you to just deduct whatever it's going to be, that monthly rate, from whatever my rent will be. So basically, he got eight to nine months of rent-free studio. So he had a control room, which gave him time to build up a client base and a client base that could actually pay him. And I think that was June, and he didn't start paying rent until February the next year. Mm -hmm. So he was able to get up and running. And at first I wasn't sure how it was going to work with two control rooms in one live room. I know a friend of mine, and I think, you know, Justin Pittsferrata mm -hmm. and Mark Allen Miller, they share a space up in Northampton and it's a similar type of thing where they share a live space. And I wasn't sure how it was going to work, but we both were able to, because I have an ISO booth here. He's got a big space there. If it's not too loud, we can do overdubs, mixing, whatever at the same time. The only thing we couldn't do is basics. So if one of us had basics, we'd have basically a day off. Yeah. Justin was on episode 109 of Working Class Audio. Cool. That was a long time ago as well. He's awesome. Well, tell me about then, what do you think is the key ingredients to making everything work between you and Zach? You guys are essentially in, we'll call it a quote unquote studio marriage, right? Mm-hmm. So what makes that work? Well, I have a confession to make. As of last month, last month, the month before, Zach Bloomstein now lives in Portland, Oregon. Oh. Yeah, he's moved to Portland. He's already done a couple of sessions up there at uh, Jackpot, Hallowed Halls, maybe. He's yeah. done a couple of sessions up there. And he's he's also mastering because he worked under Jeff Lipton for, for years 
training to master. So he's been starting to master and he's been getting good at it. So he's been able to set up a nice mix and master place at his house, but he still comes back. He's coming back like once a month to work with artists that he's got here. So with all that, we've got a former intern who does a lot of pop R&B hip hop production that has kind of taken over the room and turned it into something completely different where, you know, I put my roads in there. I put my whirly in there. We've got a Moog sub fatty in there, a Coke mini log. So it's basically like keyboard central in, in that old control room. But still, even with that, we still have a marriage going on. There's still a partnership that has to happen. And sure. Ultimately, it's important anytime you have something like that to be able to nip any potential conflict in the bud before it starts. Tell me about that. When Zach wanted to take the room over, we agreed on a monthly fee. Basically, just like whatever you charge your clients, that's fine. You're going to pay me X amount per month. You have access to all my gear, all the mics. Any instruments, any amps, we got a ton of amps here and it's all for whatever your monthly thing is. The only thing that's going to throw it off is if I have a session where I need the space, you're going to get bumped and I never bumped him. I always worked around him. If he, if he had a session booked ahead of time, I try to treat it like first come first serve and I try to respect that. And I don't think I've ever bumped anyone from that room. Okay. So I do work around it. I'm I'm not a mean guy. No, you don't have that reputation. (laughs) No. So we try to work around each other. And if one of us has a session booked for basics, like if one of us has like a week long basic session booked, the other one gets a week off or works from home or does whatever they need to do with me being the married guy. He's kind of worked around the married guy having to go away as a couple type of stuff where like, if we have a trip to LA or if we have a trip to New Orleans or Nashville, he'll just book the week out while I'm gone, you know, and he knows plenty in advance. So when he's got an artist coming in, it's like, oh, hey, I know that this week's going to be available. And he, he just booked that way. Uh, okay. So it's a, it's a communication thing and a respect thing. Always. Yeah. Always. And in the calendar, whenever we book a client in the calendar, we always put in the comments, whether it's tracking or mixing. That way, if it's mixing, the other person knows they can come in and work. And if it's tracking, they I'll put drum tracking to be specific so that whoever it is knows that it's a stay away day. I'm assuming that it's it's just a shared Google calendar, right? Yep. That's okay. exactly what it is. Yeah. And and the other thing I didn't mention with this is Zach's room is also wired up with, we've got a 16 mic in bay in there Okay. with a couple of hearbacks. And so I've tracked drums in that room looking for like that smaller tight because that room is 16 by 17. Uh-huh. So it's a good enough size room that if you're looking to do like that super tight kind of drum thing, it works great. It also works great as a large vocal booth or an amp booth. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Do you feel that you have enough mixing work that if you wanted to get rid of the studio, you could, and you could just mix. Yeah. Yeah. I currently have 50 to 55 songs on the docket to mix. So 
I could do that. Like I generally have about three months worth of mixing backlogged okay. and ready to go, but I like tracking. Okay. I like mixing. I like tracking. I like all that stuff. And I haven't mixed from my laptop yet. I try and compartmentalize a little bit so that when I'm in the studio, it's in the studio. And yeah. when, I'm, when I'm not, it's wife time. I can't really say that because technically here in my studio in my house, the laptop, while connected to a remote monitor and such, is the computer. So yeah, technically I am mixing from my laptop, but not in the sense of I'm not sitting at the kitchen table with headphones and yeah. And I know, I know there are people out there that do that. Like I know Sheps does that and his stuff sounds amazing. So there's a yeah, testament to it. You should see his recent post. Cause he and I, we talked the other day and did a, you know, the great thing about Andrew is that he is the biggest geek on the planet and mm-hmm. just like the rest of us. So I called him up. I was like, Hey, uh, are you, are you up for a video call? I got some geeky questions to ask you, like super, like, you know, hard drive connection and just crazy stuff. And if you've seen his recent post, he just installed a full Dolby Atmos approved sound. Oh, I did see that. I oh, did yeah. see that. So mm-hmm. he's gone down that path. Andrew, honestly, is one of my favorite people in this business I've ever met. Yeah. He's awesome. I love how critically he thinks about everything. I love how all of his work, you can tell that he's an artist mixer because everything that he does sounds so different and sounds like it appeals to whoever the artist is that he's working with. Yeah. I did a panel with him at Potluck Mm -hmm. and I think I've had maybe two or three other conversations with him, but he's fundamentally changed the way I think about things just by listening to him talk and just by having, just by having a simple conversation with him about his template, he changed the way I thought about things. Yeah. It it is interesting, not just about Andrew, but we'll call them the thought leaders in our business and how Mm -hmm. they can set a trend, whether it's, you know, template mixing or mixing in the box or mixing on headphones or whatever. But it's nice that we're all not just necessarily huddled in hoarding the knowledge. Everybody these days is really kind of spreading the knowledge, even if you have to pay for it, (laughs) you know, through a subscription like mix with the masters. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but it does seem like, I think most of us are teachers at heart anyway. Yeah. And I think to do this for a living, you have to have a little bit of Sherlock Holmes in you. (laughs) There is a little bit of hunting down the mystery. Uh Uh-huh. And you know this, every mix is a puzzle. Yeah, for sure. And some, some puzzles come together like that because you can just see how the pieces fit and other puzzles, sometimes they give you too many pieces. (laughs) And you've got to take some of the pieces away to make everything fit together. But each time it's kind of its own different and unique approach to things. That's why like, I love the template mixing thing. I love having a template. I love having a starting point. Mm -hmm. I've also, I was just telling my intern about this, how my mixing is so much less linear than it used to be just because of in the box and because of templates, you know, Mm -hmm. this because you, okay. So for example, you used to mix on a console off a two inch. And, you know, you finish the first song on the two inch and the mix is done and you know, right away, you just hit play to hear what the second song sounds like through the exact same settings. Right. And you're usually like between a third and halfway there, maybe, right. Unless you're making fundamental changes to what's happening with the rhythm section, or if you're going to do something completely off the wall, you're pretty close to having your foundation. Right. So I've been doing this with like, I'm working on this five song thing right now that I was working on right before we got on this call. And I started this on Monday Mm -hmm. and I pulled up the first song and kind of dialed in the foundation so that, yeah, the rhythm section's really happening, the vocal's sitting where it needs to. This is kind of like an R&B thing with horns Mm -hmm. and the horns are just blasting when they need to blast and laying behind the vocal when they need to. So I just kind of got everything foundationally, no automation, just basically processing. Yeah. Or fr- you got it framed out as I like. I, I got a frame. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I got it framed out. I, I basically have the, the sonic bed laid. Yeah. And at that point I stop and save and open up another song in the session and import all the data and just see what it sounds like. And then I'll maybe make some changes that are small, maybe make some changes that are fundamental. Yeah. Like the song I opened up was the drums were a little more Tom based, So I wanted to make it a little more roomy. So I just made some adjustments based on that and made some changes to effects. And then I went to the next song. So basically I spent like a day 
just kind of like dialing in one song and then making tweaks to the other four. I got a book for you if I haven't told you about it. Okay. This book. Template. Is that Billy Decker's book? It's Billy Decker's book. That dude is wild. Yeah. He's also one of the nicest people on the planet. I'm not surprised. That that dude that that dude is wild. The yeah. fact that like he can do that. A friend of mine, he does the Joey Sturgis stuff. Uh-huh. And a friend a friend of mine did a thing at the Joey Sturgis convention or whatever it was like two years ago. Right. And Billy Decker did a whole thing about like he mixed a song on stage in like 45 minutes. Oh, completely. Yeah. Bill, uh, Billy's <laughs> tight with Joey and AL and, and the whole unstoppable recording machine crew. Yeah. So audience template mixing and mastering. I've talked about this a million times before. I'm sure Billy Decker and Simon Taylor wrote this book and I went through it methodically and I completely wow. created the template. I started using it and I started to figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. And so, of course, now it's morphed into my own my own thing, but it started with Billy. It always thing. does though, right? Like, like the first thing you do is you rip it off. <laughs> and then the second thing you do is tweak it and adjust it to your own sensibility. So ultimately, like we're all amalgams of all the things that we absorb and all the things that resonate with us. Yeah. Well- I have to say right now, I feel I'm doing the best mixes I've ever done through this concept. And how long is it, how long is it taking you? Not, I'm not doing it in 45 minutes like Billy, but (laughs) it's taking me like, you know, two to three hours, depending on my level of tweaking. I just did a mix in two to three hours, like two or three weeks ago. And I was like, this can't be done. I haven't spent enough time on it. It can't be done. It can't be done. I haven't spent the full day. Well, well, and I honestly, like that's been another thing that I should mention with this is the whole nonlinear thought process. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I send clients mixes before I finish them. How, like per, give me a percentage. Like how far are you? 80. Okay. 80%. So I get it to a point where it's like, if I go too much further, I'm either going to like really push the vibe of this thing too far or they're going to want me to push the vibe even further. So let me get it, get it to them and be like, Hey, like foundationally, is this working for you guys? Like, is, is everything kind of sitting in a place where it makes sense? I have mixed feelings about that because I like to get it to the point where it almost sounds like a finished, completed product. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding when I do that, because I've done that, what you're talking about before. And I, I find that when I do it the way I'm doing it now, the mix revisions are fewer. Yeah. As a matter of fact, this last round of mixes that I did, six songs, there was three mix revisions for six songs. Mm-hmm. And those mix revisions were, hey, there's a bum vocal here. I need you to swap it out or auto-tune it. There's a bad bass note here. Like These were all like player things. Gotcha. And the, the I think one of the few things was, hey, I think the uh, kick drum's a little too loud on this one song. Can you just knock it down like three to five dB? I was like, okay, I guess I'm done. Yeah. Ultimately, when I'm sending out the the first round of mixes, mm-hmm. you know, it's not necessarily the first round of mixes, but if I'm sent, I'm usually sending out one song, the first song I'm working on and just being like, how does this feel? I'm not necessarily taking all the mix notes to heart because I know I still have work to do on my own end, but I'm just looking for an overall like, temperature yeah and you know that's obviously it's not one size fits all but Mm -hmm. so i think that that is valuable because case in point on this recent project too kim rosen mastered it and kim sent the first song to us and said how we doing like is this are we in the ballpark with this and lo and behold it was discovered oh actually there's there is a fix that needs to be done on our end we're going to substitute as a result Thanks for doing that. Right. Awesome. Yeah. See, and th- and that's kind of what I'm talking about. Not sending out a whole album that's like two thirds done or anything like that, but just getting like an overall, taking their temperature and getting an overall sense of what they're looking for, especially for new clients. For I me. was going to say, yeah. Because if it's someone that I've worked with before, like I just did an EP with a client that I've been working with for five years and she had like two notes on a total of three songs. So things like that, you know. You've got, you've already got a shorthand with the person that you're working with. So it comes together pretty quickly. God, I love it when the mix notes are so minimal. That is just like, oh, it's, it's awesome. I'm sitting here looking at the, the layout of the studio. You've got the L shape, as you described the live room, the red room behind that. 
mm-hmm. the green room and, and the drum repair storage area. And what? the live room looks very different now because we just did some fundamental changes. Matt, I'll have to show you afterwards, uh-huh. but we tore the ceiling apart. <laughs> okay. And we've got another foot and a half up there. And we, we changed the flooring. We changed the walls. We basically kind of went crazy in there. It's something that I've wanted to do for a while and just kind of reached a point where it was time. We had time where, where I was mixing and no one was in the other room. So I had a couple of weeks open. I've got a client that I love that's an amazing songwriter, but is also a brilliant, I call him a wood wizard because he's a brilliant carpenter and contractor. Mm. So he came in, we put down some bamboo flooring. We covered the walls with untreated pine. And because it's an old mill, we've got hundred foot wood beams above us. Jeez. Yeah. It's really vibey. Uh, that sounds vibey. Now, when you're making a change like that, where do you draw the line economically? Like you could go insane, you know, with design and <laughs> materials and all that. So what's the red line for you there? Well, I had, I had the conversation with, with Pete, the contractor, and we kind of figured out what the cost would be. The flooring cost, I think, $1,500 for the whole space. Okay. And the walls cost five. Hundred. Five hundred. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, that's, that's you know, not bad. I use cheap wood because we kind of like, I just use untreated pine and I left it untreated because it looked cool. And I already had it on, on one wall and around my control room window. I already had it kind of set up and I was like, I just want to do most of the rest of the studio. Part of the room is painted red. The other parts that weren't painted red, I want to cover in pine. Okay. And when you have untreated wood like that, is there going to be any danger of like critters? Like no ter- critters. Termites, no critters. You know. Because they're really thin planks. Oh, so, okay. Okay. We're yeah, not talking not, just like cut right out of the forest. No, no, no. We're talking about, we're talking about picked up from, you know, lumber liquidators or something oh, like that. Oh, okay. Know? Right. But see, one thing that's catching my attention here is your lounge seems separate from the studio. Is that just because it's a different part of the building? It's right across the hall from me. Okay. So everything's, we're on the fifth floor of this mill building and we're we're about half of the fifth floor. And my control room is attached to the live room, which is attached to the other control room on the other side. And then the lounge is across the hall from me. Hmm. So if you come out of the live room, it's the first door on the left is my room. And the first door on the right is the lounge. Well, that's great because then the lounge gives the the client a sonic break. Yep. Mm -hmm. Which when you're factoring building a studio, you got to have a space where people can just get away. Yeah. And there's natural light in there and everything. So people can actually look out the window Uh (laughs) and, and see what the weather's like, know what time of day it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's key. It really is. Yeah. I, I laugh, but I'm seriously, it is key. Well, also one of the bonuses through COVID has been, I've had clients able to come in to do recording, to do overdubs or whatever, because the live room space has a different entrance than the control room. Mm. So if they wanted to come in and not be in the control room during this, they could just walk straight in. We could communicate through the window and talk back and I could play it back through headphones. I could play it back through speakers. If hmm. they wanted, I could set speakers up in the room and just play it back through speakers. Would you foresee doing another studio in the future? <laughs> if the, if you ever like found yourself out of this place or, or I don't know, wanted to expand, God forbid. I mean, I'm 50. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome so, to the club. I, that's, that's what, yeah, it's wonderful. My knees are loving it. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually broke my elbow a month ago. I was exercising. I was planking and I went down to do a push up, and I heard my elbow crack and I went to the orthopedist and she was like, yep, you got a crack right in the tip of your elbow. So now that's only going to get so much better because I'm my age. Right. So, but as far as getting back to the other question, if we were to relocate, I would obviously try and set something up. It might be in a house if we move to a place where we got a house that had the space for it. Mm-hmm. We're just a couple, so we, we don't need a lot of space. It's just my wife and I, mm-hmm. and hopefully a dog soon once we're not living on a third floor. But we've toyed with the idea of moving to Nashville. She has friends and a support system there. I've got clients that I work with down there. I've been mixing for a couple of producers down there, and a couple of them have been like, you should move down. You should move down. So- it's something that's been 
more than in the back of my mind for at least the past few years, although I'm not quite there yet. I love teaching at Berkeley. I love being surrounded by some of the smartest people that I've ever met, quite honestly. Like the MP&E staff at Berkeley is just outstanding and everybody is just so incredible. I can't say enough about them. So not being there is would be strange. It would be. Also, I mean, culturally, I mean, there's a huge difference between Nashville and Boston. For better and worse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love Nashville. I have endlessly talked about how much I love that town. But it's very different from Boston. Mm-hmm. So believe me, it's something that we've thought about. And there's things about living in Boston that do not make me happy. Like snow. Well, snow, certain old world thoughts and philosophies that people sometimes can't get past. Yeah. But yeah. as much as I think about that, I think, is that going to be better in Tennessee? That's a good question. Who knows? Yeah. 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 But I think a lot of it, a lot of it has to do with your, your circle and your tribe that, that you're with. Yeah. Not saying it's groupthink, but you tend to gravitate towards people with similar sensibilities, especially on the important things in life. Yeah. So that's always a thought process with things like this. Well, plus I think in Nashville, you know, a lot of people already that already are people that you'd probably naturally gravitate to and hang with. Yeah. So. Yeah. Both in music and out of music, believe it or not. Oh, okay. I actually know people who, who are tangentially involved in the music business that I'm friends with down there that I really like and like spending time with and would like to see more. Hmm. Well, it's a great town. Love it. Yeah. Simply love it. And, you know, many, many, many good friends live there and, and some, even just the acquaintances are, mm-hmm. are solid, solid folks. So the teaching thing you're teaching a couple days a week. What's the takeaway from the teaching thing as far as what are you seeing with incoming students? What's the common denominator for better or for worse? I don't know if there is a common denominator because I teach in the major, but I also, there's a music production minor that I also teach in Mm -hmm. that I believe, you know, Enrique Gonzalez Mueller. Yeah. Enrique created the minor at Berkeley. So I've been teaching in that since my first semester teaching there. And I find it equally as interesting in that as I do in the major, because I come across students from all backgrounds and not just all backgrounds, but all different interests. Like some are songwriters that just want to know how to make really good demos. And some are film scoring people that want to understand the lexicon so they can communicate better with other audio people. Some are music business people that just want to be able to, again, it's more communication than it is anything else. So experiencing people who have different reasons for wanting to understand production as opposed to everyone who's like, I want to make tracks for people. I want to produce people. I want to be in a recording studio, whatever it might be. I love all those people because I am, I am those people. Enrique Gonzalez Mueller, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know him well, but I remember when he was out here, Mm -hmm. there was a, a short time. I remember him being here in the Bay area. I would imagine he was probably an assistant or house engineer somewhere. Yeah. I could have sworn he worked at, at fantasy, but I, I, I don't know. It's been too long. And I honestly, I don't know him that well, but I know him. I know who he is. And we've definitely yet met. another brilliant mind that I get to surround myself with. Interesting. Doesn't uh, Susan Rogers teach at Berkeley? She does. One of the, it, it's really the big thing that I miss from COVID as much as being in the room with the students, like being in the office with People like Susan Rogers and Leanne Unger and Prince Charles Alexander, Enrique, you know, there's so many people. I feel like I'm going to be leaving everybody out because there's like 30 people there, but like being surrounded by everybody and just hearing people talk about things musical and non and getting into conversations that are really thought provoking. Yeah. So let me rephrase my question about the students. Are there any bad habits that the students are bringing in? I think with COVID, some bad habits have developed, Mm. or I should say with the distance learning that's been created by COVID, some bad habits have built up, but I wouldn't necessarily say they come in with bad habits. Some of them really have wacky ideas on how to process things. If you want to talk about the technical side of things, like when I pull up a student session and I'm like, why do you have four EQs on this track? that each seemed to be counteracting what the previous one did. (laughs) 
And why does this EQ look like the Batman logo? (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of times I say, okay, so here's your kick drum. Here are your four EQs. Let me bypass all these. I'm going to put on one EQ and I'm going to do subtractive EQ on two different bands. And then we'll listen to both and you tell me which one sounds better to you. A lot of times they're thinking they have to do more when they actually have to do less. Yeah. But I think that's common when you're younger. I know it was for me. Like Mm -hmm. I know like when I was first starting mixing, I thought I would win if I just used all the patch cables. (laughs) (laughs) And see, I thought I would win if I just over compressed everything. Yeah. I, I probably did too, but I probably didn't understand compression well enough to know that I was over compressing. Yeah, I did this I did this record with this band early on and I on the stereo bus I put this kind of mediocre JBL compressor on there and I just mm-hmm. went to town. <laughs> and you can hear it at like when I hear it today, I'm like, oh listen to that JBL compressor, just kill it and destroy the life. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So this is something that I try and stress because I teach a lot of mix classes. So I try and stress in the mix classes is realize right now that all of you are really bad at this, but the bright side is you're going to keep getting better at it, provided you keep doing it. And I try and bring it back to the fact that they're all musicians. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, think about the first year that you were playing your instrument. Would you say that you were any good at it? And all of them say, no, I was awful. And I say, well, think about where you were then to where you are now and think about that progress. That progress will be accelerated now that you're older, but it's still a long process to get really good at this. I wanted to share a term with you that somebody recently shared with me that I was completely unaware of. I have this friend, Mark Sullivan. He's like a snowboarder and he's been like a news correspondent at like five Olympic games. And anyways, he's got a pretty impressive record and he's also created and sold some snowboard magazine Mm. type publications. Anyway. Mark's a great guy, and he turned me on to this term called Kaizen, which is a Japanese term meaning change for the better or continuous improvement. And it's apparently a a Japanese business philosophy regarding the process that continuously improve operations and involve all employees. So it's got some like deep business type roots in it. But just as a concept, the whole continuous improvement thing Mm -hmm. is something that I've always been working on. And I know that you... Most of us have always been working on, but I, lo- I love that there's this term out there that kind of defines it to say, yes, continuous improvement in mm-hmm. everything you do. Have you read the myth of Sisyphus? No. Albert Camus. So the idea is for those listening, if you don't know who Sisyphus is, Sisyphus is condemned by the gods to keep pushing a boulder up a mountain. Mm. And when he wakes up the next day, the boulder is back at the same place it was when he started. And he has to go back and keep pushing the boulder up the mountain. So ultimately, Camus comes to the conclusion that Sisyphus ultimately is happy because he has a role. He has a job to do every day. And he has he has a purpose, which I find kind of interesting. So this is something that Mike Shore talked about. He created Parks and Rec and, and The Good Place. I don't know if you've seen the show The Good Place, but it's a great comedy. And mm. the entire show is about what it means to be a good person. Hmm. It's incredible. And he talks about this, this entire idea and philosophy of having purpose in life. And I think we've all heard the phrase, it's, it's the journey, not the destination. Right. And I use that phrase every day. I try and live it every day and I try to remember it. It's the whole stoic idea of memento mori that we're all going to die someday and we know it. Right. And if you're aware of it, then you can live each day with purpose and have a purpose each day. I try and kind of drill that into my students where it's like, you're never going to make the perfect mix. The perfect mix doesn't exist. The phrase perfect doesn't exist. Did you listen to Joel Hamilton's tape op interview? The, was there, you mean a podcast version he, of it? He did the podcast interview? No, I haven't. It was like a month ago. And he was like, I actually had to, I texted him afterwards because I had to just continue this conversation a little bit. He was talking about the idea of better, mm-hmm. like Making an EQ move and what makes it when I go to 60, 60 dB plus 60 dB, what makes that better than plus 8 dB? You know, what is it about better? And my whole thing with that was, yeah, there's better, but it's all within the parameters of subjectivity, Mm -hmm. right? Because there is no objective better. 
there is some objective better, but that's a wide swath, right? But when it really comes down to it, there is no thing where you go, that is better than that. If it's art, that is better than that based on your opinion and someone else's opinion might be different. Okay. I've had clients where we've talked about the idea of, they say, I just want it to be perfect. And I hate the word perfect. Mm. I hate it because the word perfect today is not perfect tomorrow because you're, you've, you've grown, you've evolved, even if it's only 24 hours and your thought process in that is completely different. So striving for perfect means that you're never going to put your music out. That's true. It's never going to be perfect. I always say like aim for great. Don't aim for perfect. Aim for great. If you get it to be great a year from now, you're going to forget all the things that you thought didn't make it perfect because now it's perfect. One of the tape up conferences that I, I believe you and I were at, I heard Ian McKay from Fugazi on a panel say the best records are the ones that are done. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting just to, uh, to touch on what you said about Joel, like what makes it better plus six or plus eight. I guess I've arrived at this point where I don't really care what the process is to get there. As long as like Mm -hmm. we hit that point where it musically feels exciting and Mm -hmm. there may be something kind of fucked up about it. I actually like the fucked upness. That's some of the things that I treasure and stuff. I mean, I grew up listening to old Led Zeppelin records and Jimmy Page made a mistake on every song and you can hear it clearly. And I don't care. I actually, it's one of the things that I love about that. I love hearing the Rover and hearing him completely mishit the E. It's awesome. (laughs) So That kind of comes back to that whole nonlinear mixing thing that I was talking about earlier. Right. We all do the thing where we put it aside for the night, come back the next morning before we print. I'm sure if you don't, you should do it. Come back with fresh ears, listen to the mix that you did the previous day and see if there are any changes you want to make. Every time I do that, I do the changes and then I do a save as and see how fucked up I can make it. Like see how far I can push the envelope. And sometimes I'll post both those for the client, no matter what it is, I'll post the one that I like better. But if I can't make a decision, I want to know if they like the fucked up one. And most of the time they do. Most of the time they want to hear something that's, that's exciting them somehow. And then the other part of this too, is what I try to avoid. And sometimes I can't seem to avoid it is what I'll call the George Lucas syndrome. It's like you and I grew up on star Wars that was done in a particular way. And George goes and starts to insert all kinds of crap in there that just looks ridiculous Mm -hmm. after the fact. And it was, you know, it was fine the way we all grew up on it. Right. Mm -hmm. He left it like that. It would have been great. You know, even a a nice remaster, that's fine too. But adding all this extra stuff that wasn't there before drives me absolutely bonkers. You and me both. So I'm bringing that up because I had a client reach out to me the other day and a year ago he put out kind of a retrospective CD. Yeah, he did a CD. (laughs) You know, like the last, I don't know how many years of his career. And and I assembled it and it was like all different kinds of formats. It was vinyl and cassette and multi-tracks and all this crap. Anyways, I put it all together, mastered it. You know, he chose great songs and it was done and it was, he loved it. And then he came back to me and he said, hey, so I actually, I'm going to spend the money and re-substitute song number two. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, that's fairly straightforward. We'll just pop it out and put the new one in and make sure the new one sounds cohesive to the rest. So I'm going mm-hmm. through and I'm listening to my work from a year ago and I'm already going, hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm going to EQ that one a little slightly different. And, you know, I just started to George Lucas the whole thing. Yeah. Now, I, I wasn't trying to CGI anything in there, but I was definitely like backtracking <laughs> and I thought, dude, you cannot do this. You cannot go too far here. It, he already yep. loved it. All you got to do is get song number two in there and leave it alone. So I'm waiting for the feedback to see if everything's cool. But I literally, I had to have this out loud conversation with myself. And Sorry, George Lucas, with all due respect, dude. But Isn't that interesting, though, that it's it's similar to the idea of when you call someone in the room to give a listen and you either stand behind them or sit on a couch behind them? And all of a sudden you're hearing five things that you want to change because you're not in the driver's seat anymore. Right. It's the same type of vibe, right? That honestly was for me with, with the way I was working, it was the most invaluable thing that I had when Zach was here was I could just go in the other room and say, Hey, your next five minutes, can you come in and listen? And even if he didn't have anything for me, I would have something because I was listening 
with a different perspective on it. I was one step removed from the operating chair. Yeah. Well, all you got to do is hit play and go sit on the couch and leave Zach alone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but it's that idea. It's kind of that philosophy of someone else is listening now. Right. Right. So all of a sudden your mind is in a different place. It's like someone else is going to be critical about this. So now I'm going to hear things. Yeah. It's so strange. It's so strange because five minutes earlier, I was listening to the exact same song. And the only thing that changed is that someone else is in the room in the position I was sitting in. Yeah. Yeah. The whole process can just drive us nuts. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, dude, we're out of time. I got to, I got to like pack it up. (laughs) (laughs) It's vacation time. Yeah. I got to go to Yosemite, celebrate my wife's birthday and, uh, yeah, I'm that's super, awesome. Super excited. I get a vocal to do in 45 minutes. So. Oh, well, you see, you got to pack it up too. Just for the audience, just really quick. If you want to check out Sean's whole thing, you can head on over to his website, which is actually 37ft.com for 37 foot productions. Mm-hmm. I'll put a link in the show notes. I've also got seanmclaughlin.audio. Oh, that's where I've got all my client playlists and all that type of stuff. So. Oh, well, hell, I'll put that in there too. Hey, dude. Really great to see you and hang out and chat with you. It's been ages and welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thanks for coming on. Talk to you later. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Sean McLaughlin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Hey, if you like the show, could you do me a solid? Could you go on over to iTunes and leave a positive review? Five stars if you don't have time and small write-up if you do. Either way, it really helps out the show and I would appreciate it. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truzell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the miraculous Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Hey, connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.